Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll be reading 1 Timothy 6 verses 10 through 12. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many desires, pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let us pray. Father, I pray that You soften our hearts to Your truth revealed in Scripture. The truths that cut truths that heal, the truths that confront, the truths that convict. We're desperate. We're desperate as Jesus lovers to constantly have You working and operating on us. Do that this morning. Through Your Word. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. This is the, the last in the series on the core values of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. This morning is core value number five. Small groups. The point is this. To be known and to know others in community life is a core aspect of fighting the fight of faith in real everyday life. Notice again in our text in verse 12 what the Apostle Paul commands to Timothy. And by implication, even though he's talking to a pastor here, it, this is the Christian life. He doesn't mean Timothy, you fight and the rest of you don't, don't fight. Fight. The good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That call there for born-again people is that call to faith. It is that supernatural work of new birth by the Spirit, a rising spiritually from the dead. It's what you called to, Timothy. And notice, with that call comes the command. Fight! Fight! Lay hold of eternal life to which you have been called. So what I purpose to show this morning is that God has ordained in the daily Christian life, that we be blood earnest about fighting against our own innate sinful nature, which says, don't 
believe in God's promises or commands. To fight. And that He has ordained that the main way we fight is not alone, but in small groups. Community. The core of the Christian life from new birth to death is a wartime mentality against our sinful natures. And done biblically with brothers and sisters who are very different than you. Personalities are different. Cultures are different. Backgrounds are different. But you have something that unites that is greater than any other thing that unites anybody in this world. And if one thinks or refuses to live in community as a professing Christian, it is a deeply selfish act. So the fifth core value of Sovereign Grace Fellowship is to always figure out ways to make this happen. So, let's go to our text, our first text. I do have three main texts this morning. Here's the first, 1 Timothy 6. And let's notice something crucial about what Paul's saying about fighting the fight of faith. There's at least two aspects he must be getting at from the context here. And the first is this. That it means somehow fight. It's a battle every day to maintain the faith you have and or to, to, to grow, expand, become stronger in your faith. Notice, look, at, look back at verse 11. Paul urges Timothy, flee from all these desires, these pains that, that are going to destroy you and your eternity. Flee from that and go after something else. Pursue, and one of those things is faith. And then he restates it in verse 12. Fight the fight of faith. So, so somehow he means here, fight, pursue. Faith means get, hold on to that object called your heart towards God and His Word. In faith. And like Jesus described it, Faith is like the man who found a treasure in the field. He can't, how fortunate. And he covers it up. And in his, not legalism, not I guess I'm supposed to do it, in his joy, he goes, he sells everything he has, and he buys the field. He heard the gospel of the treasure. It moves him or commanded. Hold on. Fight against everything that is there to destroy that faith in your life. New birth, he raises us from the dead, he shines the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ upon our hearts. Do you remember that moment? You remember those times? You remember that time of your life? If you're a believer, you remember that? Okay, guess what? Then he leaves us with the same 
old sinful disposition. We're different because the Spirit has now come to dwell within us. We have desires we did not have, but we're left with the same God-belittling, overpowering desires. That's the Christian life. And therefore, the battle is on. It is the fight against constant sinful actions of unbelief that manifest themselves in everything you and I do. Decisions we make. Like covetousness. Pride. Envy. Sexual immorality. Ongoing bitterness. Unforgiveness. On and on. No. You, you, in other words, the daily battle is like this. You could be trying to drive your family home from a hundred degree temperature in the desert and eight of you are in a van and it won't go more than 20 miles an hour all of a sudden before you leave the desert. And for three hours you figure out what can I do? How can I get this fixed? And then you realize how you get it fixed and it costs a lot of money you don't have. And you panic. And you deal with it. And you read what God says, like for instance, Hebrews 13, 5-6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. You see, now if you just stop there and go, okay, I'll do the Christian life. I'm supposed to live that way. You don't have the Christian life. Because all of those commands, they're rooted in God's promises to you, which are gotten at only through a heart of faith. You fight the fight of faith to believe. So listen to what Paul, I mean not Paul, the writer of the Hebrews says. Do this. Flee. Have a character that's free from the love of money. Because God Himself said, that's where we need the promise in our heart, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Oh, there's the promise. And he goes on, so that we can confidently say, no matter what comes, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Okay, you're winning the battle against fear. What can man, what can the world do to me? That's the ongoing daily battle of faith. There's a thousand of those type of texts and things that deal with different areas of our life. You're struggling with that pain and that hurt that person caused you. Bitterness, you just can't let it go. And you hear sermons on forgiveness and you you don't understand. And you go to God where He speaks. Never take your own revenge, beloved. but leave it for the wrath of God. And then he says, here's a promise. You can trust that I know what I'm doing. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Child of mine, trust me. So okay, That's enough illustration. That's the daily, ongoing battle of faith. And the context of 1 Timothy 6 means every Christian must fight. Must keep on pursuing faith. In other words, we must not rest or be lackadaisical in our lives as if the faith we have will always remain. 
or that it's all that we need for what's coming ahead, we must never think that the Christian life is, I have faith, and it is true He gave it to you if you have it. You must never think with genuine faith that therefore I will make it to the end without a fight of faith against unbelief on a daily basis. Because the Christian life is that there are incoming shells blowing up around the trenches of believers all the time. And some of the best shells of the enemy of your soul are those that are exploding quietly. As if the sound were turned off. And the best place to be spiritually killed is alone. Digging your own foxhole instead of with the troops. If one thinks, because I, I made a confession of faith back when, and therefore, that confession of faith back then is what saves me in the end, without a battle, without a fight in the context of community that Jesus has constructed, then that person may be in for a shock on Judgment Day. At the end of his life, Paul wrote another letter to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, he says as he's an old man, he's in prison, he will be executed by the state. I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. No matter what you may have been taught in Christianity, this is the biblical model. Fight. Persevere to keep loving, thus trusting God, Christ, the Scripture. Living a life that is evidencing repentance and a life that is evidencing He is your hope. His promises are for your good his commands are grounded on those promises. And so the first meaning of fight the fight of faith at least has to mean fight, grow up in your faith or maintain the faith you have at least. Secondly, what this text from Paul says, fight the fight of faith, it's got to mean, I think, because clearly here it is a weapon that is that battle that lifestyle of fighting the faith is a weapon in this text that we use in order to finally gain the victory of eternal life. Look at verse 12 again. Fight 
the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Yeah. Paul's got two imperatives there. And I think the reason he adds that second imperative, take hold of it, after the imperative fight, is because the fighting of the fight of faith is how you attain the eternal life which lay ahead. In other words, lay hold of eternal life by fighting the fight of faith is his logic. Uh, like the trainer would say to his boxer in the final 12th round. Okay, we're ahead here. here. Go out there in that 12th round. Last round. Give it all you got. Fight the fight. And lay hold of that championship belt. Well, what does he mean? He means the way you're going to get the championship belt is to fight this last round. For This is... This here is really important because I think one of the main reasons there is so little deep, earnest concern for desperateness for God and constantly judging our own souls and motives as as we see unbelief in ways other people can't even see it and to take it with blood-earnest seriousness like aliens who live on this world right now the reason I think there's so little of that is because this truth is not taught nor believed in much of American evangelicalism. And not only that, there is a theology that is out there that rips this truth out of the Bible. Let me just give you an illustration. There's theology out there in conservative American evangelicalism that I've been a part of for 30 some odd years that rips the truth out of, and I can read for an hour, but I'm not. I'm just going to read for a minute and a half a few, few texts that you just, you don't believe them. You can't believe these in the theology of much of present day evangelicalism. When Paul writes, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, the gospel by which you also are saved. Good news. And then Paul gets his theology all wrong. By throwing in this. If you hold fast the Word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Where do you get that, Paul? The question is, where do we get a place where we won't believe? that. Or, or Paul, here's how he describes his very personal life. This is a man who loves the idea of being saved in Jesus. He wants to make it. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I buffet my body. I make it my slave, not the other way around because it wants to lead me away from God constantly. I buffet my body. I make it my slave. Why, Paul? Less or in order that it not happen this way, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Work out your salvation, Philippians, with fear of unbelief in your hearts and trembling at the prospect. That will cause urgency. Or Hebrews 6, 11-12. Believers, we desire that each one of you show the same, here's the word, diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just, just one more. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, says to the church, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling in choosing you. Because as long as you practice these fruits of the Spirit that He just listed, then you'll never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There's foundation. That's why small groups are essential. That's why body life is crucial for every professing believer. They are a crucial gift of God. A crucial means of persevering in faith to the end. And so what I'm contending is this. That the reason that we believers should have ongoing, however that happens, in whatever churches it happens, ongoing, organized, informal, small groups, Six people, maybe up to 20. It starts to get too big. It's hard to know people. Where you can know others. Care about others. And here's a scary word. Be known by others. The reason that's crucial is because of the biblical conviction that believers who make it to heaven must lay hold of eternal life by fighting the fight of faith. And that is not done biblically alone. It is done in community. Sunday morning, like right now, you're all looking here. No one's looking at each other. This is a monologue. It's called preaching. It's important. I argued it two weeks ago. But it's not enough in the Christian life. I want you now to go to our second main text. Ephesians 4. And look what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul about the general structure of church life. Starting in verse 11, he writes, And He, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
So in the flow, Paul says, Jesus, after He came to earth, after He died for our sins and He was resurrected, then He ascended. And when He ascended on high, He gave gifts to the church. And then in verse 11, He describes those gifts as persons with, with an office in the church. Like pastors slash teachers. And then in verse 12, He says the reason or the goal of giving those gifts. For this, in order to equip the saints, all the members of the body, to equip them for the work of ministry. Here's the goal. Unto the building up, the maturing, Becoming strong of the whole body of Christ. That's the flow. The building up of the body of Christ is the goal of the gifts. The gifts are the source. It's the beginning. The Word of God coming. Oversight coming. And it doesn't lead directly to the building up in this text. There's these, this dynamic that's happening between Jesus giving Apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers to the church. And it doesn't produce building up automatically or directly, but indirectly. Because that indirect thing in the culture of Christianity is what is so often lost. Notice, He gives to the church spiritual leaders, shepherds, teachers, whose role is to equip the body for what? Answer, for the work of ministry. Service. Ministry of each member to the other members. And from that work of ministry, in the body, in the community, the body is built up. Teaching and preaching of the Scripture, biblical Christian doctrine that is faithful is essential. I argued that two weeks ago. But it's only the spring coming from the mountain. It flows down and causes the river of Christian living. Now, if you cut off that spring in the Word of God and truth, then you just become little therapy groups and not Christian groups. That's true. That the spring's essential, but it's coming out of the mountain through the waterfall. Christianity is swimming in the river that that creates on a daily basis with one another in the body of Christ. Pastors and teachers in this text don't do the work of ministry. They do in that they're also sheep and members and have their own lives and battles to fight amongst. But in the role of oversight and instruction and teaching, here, they're not doing the work of ministry. The body does the work of ministry. They equip the members. Like I hope it's happening right now. I hope some of you who have not been blood earnest about your fight of faith will see something. And you'll see it in the Scripture. 
in a way you have never seen it and thus act and move. Let me put it all together, what I've said so far. Every single person who comes to saving faith in Jesus as individuals, we are all in a battle. A battle to preserve our faith. To grow in faith. The Word taught, the Word preached in the congregation is biblical and it is essential, but that Word preached is not the end of the line. There's a church. Walk in every Sunday. Punch my time card. Heard the Word. Leave. And that's my Christianity. I was raised in a religious home. We went to church every Sunday. For 18 years, I do not remember one time I, nor do I remember one time my parents developed any friendships because of their attachment to that particular church. We punched the card. Went to Mass. Did our duty. Went home. Knowing no one and safely not being known by others. The Word's not the end of the line. What's going on now is not the end of the line. It's crucial. But the way this text says it is that this Word is to impact each and every believer and produce in them works Ministry, service, love, care. And the result of that is the maturing of the corporate body of Christ. Now, having said that, I am going to read the whole passage and just see if you hear it. And I don't know what to do. Here's Paul. Here's the Holy Spirit through Paul. Jesus, who died, rose, He then ascended, and He personally gives gifts to the church and shepherds, teachers, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. No, but rather speaking the truth in love. That speaking is not this speaking that I'm doing right now. That's the body of Christ in the trenches of life speaking the truth to one another in love. And in or by so doing, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head of the church, 
That is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, making the body grow. So that it builds itself up in love. The point is that the body is an organism. Joints, ligaments. There's life force supposed to be flowing through it. It's a community. It's a family which is called to minister to each other. To build each other up in the body of Christ with the truth of the Gospel. To build up each other's faith in order that we all lay hold of eternal life and persevere to the end. That's Christian living. The question is whether Sunday morning worship service, preaching service, especially here where we're very purposefully more radically vertical on Sunday, on purpose because that's also biblical, the question is whether Sunday morning preaching slash singing and praying and taking communion service provides enough of the setting in which mutual ministry and caretaking and encouraging and building up and knowing and being known can happen? And the answer in general here in most every church is no. One can sit in a pew for 30 years and never live the Christian life of community body life, loving other believers, sacrificing time, energy, thought, prayer, care, money for them. Being boosted along the pathway of laying hold of eternal life and helping others be boosted along that pathway. It's very possible to be a regular churchgoer. Never participate in that community Christian life. See, I think one of the most unwise and it depends, well, it depends. Sometimes, okay. One of the most unwise and selfish attitudes toward this is to say, well, I don't want to go to those groups. I got these interests in life. No one there has my interest in this world. There's already something wrong with that, isn't there? Really? Christianity is about being in a surfer's group because you're a surfer? Or a musician's group because you're a musician? I thought it was about Christ. Or, or the attitude, look, man, I mean, I got my own personality and there's lots of personalities in life that just bug me and I can't take it and it's irritating to me. Say, so, I don't want to be around those kind of people. That's why Jesus wants you to be around those people. Because He cares about you and He wants to grow you. Look, I'm young. I'm in my 20s. I don't want to be around old people. Or old people. I don't want to be around young people. What are you t- Is Christ the center? 
Is He your pursuit? Or something else? And see, here's the biblical grounds for that, from what I just said about the foolishness of that. It is foolish because those differing dynamics and personalities and things that irritate you and me about each other is the way God planned it. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. No, again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. See, there, there is there's crucial dynamics that happen. Only when Christians go through that fearful process of being somewhat vulnerable with a few others, not everybody, just can, can I be vulnerable? Can, can we grow? Can we have the words at, at the center? Yeah, can I allow you to ask me some tough questions about my life? So whether you find that on your own, Churches ought always to make opportunities for people to say, you want that? Here it is. Because the Bible says this is the Christian life. To be vulnerable about your struggle in the fight of faith. Take off masks. Because every genuine Christian is in a fight. Which means sin, brokenness is there. And you need others. But not only that, they need you. Don't be selfish. I mean, living by the motto, well, I'm strong. I listen to 18 sermons a week off the internet, and I got my books and my Bible. I'm, I'm strong. I don't need to be in small groups. So you think you're strong. And if you were strong, the attitude would be because I'm strong. I have a holy calling to love my brothers and sisters. I have a holy calling to show up and minister and bless and care about others because something crucial is at stake. Let me say, as I'm going to be turning out of my third and final main passage, if you believe in Jesus, if you really believe that the Holy Scripture, as we have discussed over the last number of weeks through 2 Timothy, is the God-breathed Word, inerrant and infallible, and I have not yet convinced you of the importance of fighting the fight of faith in community and in vulnerability, then look with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12-14. to The writer writing to us, really, professing Christians, says, Take care. He means, Be really careful about this. Take care of your lives, brothers. It's this word for Christians. 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, not the mirror, exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Fighting the fight of faith at least means doing whatever God tells us to do in order to guard against a growing, unbelieving, hardening heart toward Him. Right? To guard against that alone deceitful, rationalizing, sinful lifestyle. And the way to battle the incoming shells of unbelief and hardening of heart, the way to do it, according to this inerrant, infallible text, is by exhorting one another toward God toward faith in Christ and His promises this exhortation of, of, of warning turn back from where you're going and this assumes therefore that church life it doesn't just consist of this public meetings where Teaching, preaching, and singing happen. And then you go home and return the next week. This one another, you just, I would love to dialogue with you all day long, in home group on Wednesday, any other time. I, I, how, how does he say this? Unless He's not assuming the church I was raised in, I'll tell you that. He must be assuming that he understood the Christian life as they know each other. And they're being known by each other. And there's this atmosphere where they could be face to face. This exhorting one another assumes close, eye to eye, in each other's lives kind of contact where people somehow now have earned the right. And there is that in life. Some people haven't earned the right to say things to you like other people have earned that right. Open up, let more people in and earn the right, and vice versa. We're that spurring one another on, exhorting, encouraging, warning. Warning against your life is starting to manifest. It's deceived, rationalizing. That's what I think he means here by this uh, fighting against, how does he say it? The deceitfulness. 
of sin. Because sin is just not just sin. It deceives us to think it's not sin. It's like anything else. The more you get into it, the harder you become. And the easier it is. It's not good around people who will bother me about not trusting in God. That's what he says. But exhort one another every day. And then why is he, why does the writer, why does the Holy Spirit through him throw this in? As long as it is still called today. The only day you'll, you won't wake up and say it's today is when you're dead. You don't ever get past this until you go to be with Jesus. As long as it is called today, he says, this is necessary so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So whether they're formally organized or you've been fortunate enough to be a person to gather genuine, strong Christians in in church life around you and you eat lunch and you hang, whatever that is, it's essential. Let me just give you, you know, an illustration why body life in places where there's horizontal stuff going on becomes important. Much of my persevering in faith depends on a fellow Christian, a godly wife. Now, here's the illustration I want to use. And this doesn't just happen with spouses. It doesn't always happen with spouses. But I need, you need these more than this. But here's the illustration. Why is that important to my persevering in faith? Because she knows me. She knows me emotionally. She knows my history. She's lived with me a lot of that history. She knows my thoughts. She knows my motives. She knows my pattern. Why is that important for Joe to persevere in faith in the end and not shipwreck his faith? Because I cannot play spiritual games with her. It won't work. I can't live in self-deceit ongoingly with fellow Christian Sonia. I don't fool her. We need more and more of those people in our lives to take off the mask, quit playing, be real. Sinner, broken person, be real with this glorious Gospel of Jesus that saves sinners who persevere to the end in order to be saved as Jesus says it. She and I share the truth of the Gospel. We share the knowledge that we're both screwed up. We're both sinful and thus we are ripe for salvation in Jesus as sinners. And we spur one another on. Confront each other's sinfulness. Go to the Word of God. 24 years ago, when I was in seminary, my wife, who wasn't my wife, then moved out here. We found a church together. Early 1990s. i am still got three years of seminary. I'm going to tell you, we were in a church where, let me just say, the, the preaching in that church that we started going to in 91 was awful. It wasn't really biblical. I mean, 
I, I believe the pastor was a Christian, but it was just horrendous the kind of preaching. And, and you got a seminary student who gets all judgmental. Whatever. Okay, how do I deal with? It? Okay, you know. But but you know, I, I knew how to feed myself. You know, I'm, I'm in seminary. I'm, I'm dealing with Bible and theology all the time. But I'm going to tell you one thing: I would not let go. Was my church life. And the church life wasn't when we met every Sunday morning in that cafeteria in Venice. That wasn't it. It was on Thursday nights at Bob and Liz's house. I knew, especially as a seminary student, how desperate I was to sit in a room with 10 to 17 people who may show up at Bob and Liz, these old people. And I was 30. My wife was like 23 probably at the time. The idea that these are 70 some odd year old people who are retired, what do I have in common with them? We had everything in common with them. And the other young people who would come and middle aged people who would come, we had Christ in common. For the next couple of years, that was our church life, really. We didn't know anybody else pretty much in the church. There was big. If you don't believe it, I mean there's like 175 people on Sunday morning or 200, which actually is fairly large. To get to know them was almost impossible without a group like that. So these people became the people we cared about and they cared about us. Okay, now I know I made the sermon way too long, but it's just crucial. Being called to account by a believing spouse or friend, or church member. I want you to just think if this is not true. I know it's true for me. It is uncomfortable to the extent we are at that moment hardened toward God and deceived by our sin. And if we in our Christian lives get to a place say, I want to remain there. Thank you. I don't like that uncomfortableness. Then here's my advice. As you go look for a church, you look for one that will not take Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 seriously. So that it feels safe to you. But the consequences of that decision may be horrific. This church life that he's talking about in Hebrews 3 is really important because of what the text says is at stake when believers gather together to nurture each other's fight in the fight of faith. Look at verse 14. For... See the word for? It's the Greek word gar. It means what he just said in verses 12 and 13 about church life and exhorting one another so that you don't fall away from the living God. He says, here's the reason this is crucial. For, meaning ground, or because of this. We have come to share in Christ if, if indeed, if truly, 
we do hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, a lot of you teenagers or young 20s, you don't know this yet by experience. Numbers of us who have been around the church world for 10, 20, 30 some odd years do know it. It happens all the time. Zealous, on fire, hand-raising, Bible-reading, Bible-study-going, church-going people slowly pull away from the Word, from God, from the Christian community. Get more and more deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Some turn back. And others fall away altogether. So we're clear. I believe with all my heart in biblical, eternal security of the believers. There is no sheep of Jesus that will ever lose His or her salvation. Ever. In other words, every human being who has ever been born again and thus been put into Christ, manifested by saving faith, every single one of those persons cannot lose their salvation. Believe that with all my heart, it is so blatantly biblical. But I also believe, on the basis of Hebrews chapter 3.14, that only those who hold to their saving confidence in Jesus will be saved. In other words, all who will reach glorification, the way Paul puts it in Romans 8, Predestined, foreknown, called, justified, sanctified, and eventually glorified in the resurrection of the dead. All who reach final salvation, every one of them must persevere in faith to the end. Read verse 14 again. For we have come to share in Christ. He did, did not say, okay guys, if you keep this up, then in the future, you will share in Christ. That's not what He says. It's past tense. But it's not the past tense in Greek of the aorist or of the imperfect. Three people know what that meant. But it's important. It's a perfect tense verb. He's saying it is true in the past this happened with ongoing through the years up to the very present and still ongoing. This truth going through your life is real. You do share in Jesus. Absolutely. How do you know? That's the next clause. It's proven. Because you will be one who holds your original confidence firm to the end. In other words, 
if one forsakes Christ ultimately, and 2,000 years of church history of professions of faith have proven millions of people do it. If one forsakes Christ ultimately, then we know they were never truly born again. They were never truly sharers in Christ. This is how the Apostle John says it. In 1 John 2.19. They, in other words, fellow baptized professing Christians, this is whom he's talking about in the context, they went out from us. They left eventually. But they were not really of us. Why would you say that, John? He gives the answer. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And and the reverse is true. If one is truly born again and of us in Christ or has a share in Christ, as Hebrews 3 says, then they will not forsake Christ utterly and ultimately, but they will fight the fight of faith ultimately with ups and downs successfully and hold firm to the end. But we live in a day and an age where many people have a doctrine of eternal security that makes the warnings against sin and a heart of unbelief and the the, the, the warnings say you need exhortation in the body, you need to fight the fight of faith. They have a doctrine of eternal security that says those texts aren't really important though to make it to the end. And that doctrine of eternal security is unbiblical. I don't need that. I don't need to be spurred on. I don't need to be part of the body building up one another. I don't need to fight the fight of faith. I said a prayer. I pulled the lever. And I was in. No. The biblical attitude of biblical eternal security is this. I know Him. Rather, He knows me. While I was yet sinful, He came, He died for me, and I came to faith. And I realized biblically, because He called me to faith. He put me in Christ. He will never lose me. And thus, I know that because as I look at the Bible, I'm one of those who takes with blood earnest seriousness the warnings against unbelief. Who takes with blood serious earnestness that I am desperate for believers to build me up and encourage me and vice versa. Faith believes the Word of God in those texts. So God's way, what I'm saying is this, His way of preserving our faith until the end is by His empowering of the Holy Spirit which causes us to take the Scripture seriously and causes us to take seriously the truth of all Scripture 
His promises and His grave warnings about our sinful decisions, starting new patterns of sinfulness that we need to turn back from. Again, 28 seconds. I'll slowly read the text, see if you don't hear it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But here's the precaution. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because, here's the truth, it's true that we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. That's why small groups, community life is a core value in Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Sunday is purposely vertical. Little horizontal happens. We need more. That's why it's crucial for each individual. It's crucial for body life. It's crucial to practice loving others. It's crucial to have others get in your face and bother you so that you have to forgive them and you practice Bible. Forgive one another. It's easy to deal with those texts when you're never in others' lives. But it's so that you get known by a few at least. See, churches that have a thousand or three thousand, and, and, and many of them do, and they believe exactly what I'm saying. They, as leadership, they know they have a problem. And, and they work the best they can. They know that they're going to have to create a hundred, a hundred and ten groups. Other churches, they've got to create eight or nine. You can't have huge groups. You've got to have them smaller. So people can be known. Pray together. Understand what's going on in each other's life. They're sick. It's just not some you know, robot who's doing his pastoral job just visiting him. That person knows me. They care about me. Because I've got this diagnosis to fight the fight of faith against fear. It's people who know you so that when they have a word or they say something or you're just in constant interaction, their word may be trusted by you. It'll be intimate. It'll shape your special faith crisis. But millions of evangelicals choose not to have church community like that. And Hebrews 3 says, they are in grave danger. And many of us, looking at one there, one there, have been Christians long enough to have seen friends and their spiritual souls laying flat on the war field ground of American evangelicalism, denying Jesus. No, not, not with their lips, many of them, but denying Jesus with their lives and the way they live. Let's pray. And then we'll sing. And we'll sing 
with awe that God is amazing that you saved such a wretch like me. And your gifts and your body is a treasure. And Jesus will be glorified in our midst. Father, thank You for Your Word and for each and every one of us in our battle against unbelief. Would You work these truths deeply? Would You use us for the benefit of others? And would You make us humble enough to be used or have others be used to help? in this fight to love you more deeply, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to the glory of your name. Amen.